The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 6 and verse 17. The 17th verse in the 6th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Now, in order to remind you again of the context, I'll start reading once more at verse 14. Now, about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. But as I say, we are concentrating this evening on the 17th verse. If any man will do his will, or if you prefer it, if any man willeth to do his will, or again, if any man wisheth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God, or whether I speak of myself. Here, in other words, our Lord is continuing his address to these Jews who had marveled at his preaching in the temple at Jerusalem. Our Lord, you remember, had gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles, and halfway through the feast, he began to teach in the temple. And the effect of that was that these Jews, these Jewish authorities, marveled. They were amazed at him. And yet you remember that instead of reacting to that rightly, as they should have done, and going to him and saying, well, can you explain to us where you've got this learning from? It's a problem to us. We don't understand it. Instead of doing that, they dismissed him. They treated him with derision. They said, how knoweth this fellow letters, having never learned? They dismissed him as an outsider. He didn't belong to their academy. And though they'd marveled at his teaching, he and his teaching are thus entirely dismissed by them. Now, our Lord is concerned about this, and so he takes up the matter. And we are looking at it because here is a most extraordinary account given of the very essence of unbelief. This is the great tragedy of the New Testament, that though he came to his own, his own received him not. There is no greater tragedy than this that while God has offered everything that we need through the person of his only begotten Son, the world in its need rejects him, turns away from him, dismisses him with scorn as these people did on this occasion so long ago in Jerusalem. Now, our Lord was concerned about this. So he turned to them and he said, My teaching, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And as we saw last Sunday night, what he's saying there is, 
that their whole approach to truth is wrong. Their whole conception of truth is wrong. They think this is some human teaching. And he points out to them that it isn't that it's teaching from God, that it's revelation. And their whole manner of trying to approach the truth is wrong. They do it with their minds, with their training, with their intellects. And that was why they dismissed him. Because he lacked that training. They said, who is this fellow? He's never been to the college, as it were. He's never been to school. How is this fellow learning, having never learned? So, in terms of intellectual pride and uh, academic prejudice, they dismissed him and his teaching. And our Lord shows them the complete fallacy that is involved in that particular approach to the truth. But that was negative. So now he goes on and he puts it to them in a positive manner. And that is what we have in this verse that we are looking at tonight. He says, you know, if you really want to know whether this teaching is my teaching only, or whether it is the teaching of God, I can tell you exactly how you can come to a decision. You say that this is only my teaching, because it doesn't correspond to yours. I've already told you that it's neither yours nor mine, but that it's from God. But if and as you still query my statement... Well, I can put forward to you uh, a test which will settle this thing once and forever. If any man wisheth and willeth to do the will of God, he will know for certain whether this teaching is really nothing but a human teaching, my own speculation, or whether it is indeed in truth teaching, revelation, which has come from God. Well, now, my dear friends, I needn't point out, need I, that we are looking here at the most crucial question that we can ever consider. Our position is this. Here is the world in its need. Here are individuals in their need. Here is the extraordinary teaching of this Christian gospel. And yet, as I say, the vast majority of people turn away from it. will have nothing to do with it. What is the matter with them? What is the cause of this unbelief? The answer that is given here is that it is just this question of the wrong approach. And because men and women approach it in such an entirely wrong manner, they stumble at difficulties here and there, they remain in their sins, in their miseries, and in their sorrows, and they never know the blessings and the glories and the joys of this gospel of the Son of God. Very well then, let us see how our Lord puts it positively. You do this, he says, and you'll know for certain. Now then, here is a specific injunction. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. Let me divide this statement up now. Here are a number of propositions. There are three of them as I see it. Here is the first. The true approach to Christian truth is essentially moral rather than intellectual. 
I would assert that that is an obvious proposition which emerges from this statement. If any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. Very well. I say that Christian truth is to be approached primarily and most essentially along moral lines rather than along intellectual lines alone. Now, as we've already seen, the trouble with these Jews was that their approach was purely intellectual. That's why they dismissed him. He didn't belong to the schools. He hadn't the true learning. How could he have? Who was this fellow, this upstart? And so they dismissed him. And what our Lord is really saying to them is this. Ah, he says, you don't believe my teaching because you're approaching it in the wrong way. You are sizing me up in academic terms. You're looking at me in terms of intellectual positions. Now, he said, if only you approached what I'm saying in terms of your moral need and your moral response to God's law, the whole position would be different. In other words, he accuses them of a kind of hypocrisy. They say they're very interested in God and they're concerned to please God and to know and to do God's will. He says you're not. Because if you really were, you'd believe my doctrine and you'd know that it is a doctrine from God and not my own teaching. Their trouble was that they'd intellectualized the whole of religion and the moral element was being forgotten. And hence their antagonism to our Lord everywhere in the four Gospels. But surely this is still the same. The trouble is still this. Why are people in trouble about this Christian faith? Why are Christians such a small minority in this country? The answer is that men and women are still approaching it in the wrong manner. They're approaching it in this purely theoretical and abstract way which of necessity, according to our Lord, leads to a kind of impasse and a complete failure. Christianity is regarded as a, a kind of philosophy, a number of concepts and of teachings and of thoughts, and so people approach it in this purely intellectual, detached, academic and theoretical manner. It's a sort of dilettante attitude. And that, according to our Lord, is the cause of the whole trouble. Now let me illustrate what I mean. You talk to anybody who is not a Christian. And you say to them, now, why are, why are you not a Christian? Well, they'll say, you know, there's this question of miracles. And they want an argument at once about miracles. How miracles are impossible because of the knowledge that science has given us. Now, that's arguing about Christianity, they think. They're in trouble about these miracles, which are reported here in connection with the life and early ministry of our Lord. And they say, well, of course, they believed that sort of thing at that time. They were governed by magical notions. But we know science has put that sort of thing right out of court. Laws of nature. There cannot be miracles. There are no miracles. And so the whole evening is spent in arguing about miracles, the relationship of science and religion. That, they think, is the approach to Christianity. And then in the same way, as you know full well, they would argue about the incarnation, about the person of our Lord. They try to understand the divine and the human Two natures in one person, they're trying to dissect the supernatural and the divine. They're trying to get it down to the level of their own understanding. They say, all oh, this supernatural talk of yours, they say it doesn't fit into our philosophies. It doesn't come into our categories. And so the learned discussion goes on purely in the realm of thoughts and concepts and abstractions. Everything is theoretical. Everything is academic. 
Isn't that how it happens? But then you say there are some who are interested in morality and ethics and uh, behavior. I agree, but you notice that they also discuss even that in an entirely philosophical and theoretical manner. They say, what is morality? What is the basis of morality? You listen to them. The brain trust people and people like that. They're very interested in moral concepts and ideas. And, but the whole thing is delightfully theoretical. It's a playing of mind against mind and theory and argument one against another. All up there in the realm of theory and academics. Isn't that the position? And that, according to our Lord, is the thing that accounts for the fact that people are not Christian. Their whole approach is wrong. There is no hope of arriving at a knowledge of Christian truth along that particular line. He says that there is only one way to approach this truth. There is only one way to know him. There is only one way to understand his teaching. It is this. It is to have within us a deep and a genuine desire to know God. It is to have within us a deep longing to be holy, to be clean, to be pure. If any man wishes to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. You see the difference in the approach? No, no, the man is no longer approaching this whole problem with this academic theoretical attitude. He's not arguing and saying what he thinks God ought to do and not to do and what God is like and what God should not be like. No, no, the man says, here I am in the midst of life in this great world. And I'm troubled about myself. I don't even understand myself. I don't understand my own life. I do things that I shouldn't do. I don't do the things that I know that I ought to do. Oh, this is my problem. It isn't that my little mind may understand the infinite, but isn't there somehow some way whereby a man can be delivered from himself and from his failures? I'm lost in life. Oh, that I might find God and know him and be enabled to live in a holy and in a worthy manner. If any man wishes to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. That's our Lord's teaching. In other words, you see, you come down from these great intellectual heights and you start with yourself and your own life and your daily living. It's much easier to talk about science and religion than to talk about yourself, isn't it? It's much easier to wax eloquent about miracles and about the supernatural and about the, the incarnation and the atonement than it is just to, oh, to look at yourself honestly in a mirror and to admit the truth about yourself and really try to discover what's the matter with you and how you can be delivered. But that, says our Lord, is the only way. You've got to be personal and you've got to be practical. This is essentially a moral question. This is the approach. Well, now, you notice that our Lord not only teaches that here, he teaches it everywhere else. Did you notice that reading at the beginning out of the Sermon on the Mount? Did you notice the Beatitudes? Here is our Lord laying down the great principles of his kingdom, the kingdom of God. This, he says, is the most Wonderful thing in life to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Well, what are the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom of God? Are these brilliant intellects? 
Are these expert philosophers? Are these people who can bendy magical philosophical terms and talk about science and religion and try and dissect God and show their vast learning? Listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the self-confident academician. Not the man who's so proud of his learning and who feels that his little mind can encompass the whole universe and speak authoritatively on every question, God and life and death and heaven and hell and everything else. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, it's a quality of being. It's a humble man. A man who feels he can't rely on his intellect nor on anything else in himself. He's poor in spirit. That's how he describes him. This is the way into the kingdom. Blessed are they that mourn. What are they mourning about? Oh, they're mourning because of the character of their lives. They're mourning because of their failures. They see their sins. They've taken their resolutions, but they can't keep them. They're unhappy because of their moral failure. Blessed are they, says our Lord, but you see, these clever intellectuals are not there. They don't talk about that. Oh, they say, no, I don't. What I don't see is why God, if he's a God of love, should do this and allow that. And all this talk of yours about miracles. And there they are in this intellectual realm. My dear friend, that's the extreme opposite of the man who enters into the kingdom and who arrives at this knowledge. Blessed are they that mourn. This is a moral quality. Then blessed are the meek. I have sometimes thought that there is nothing so different from the essentially modern non-Christian men than that. Blessed are the meek. Oh, but I'm the 20th century man. Everybody who lived before me was an ignoramus. I'm the man who's received the latest results of science, the last advance of knowledge. The meek is the exact, the self-confident modern who can dismiss God with a wave of the hand and spit out Christ out of the corner of his mouth. Blessed are the meek. Oh yes, blessed are they that do hunger and thirst. After what? After yet greater knowledge. After yet greater understanding. At yet more brilliance. Not at all. Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's the thing to go for. Righteousness. Straightness. Cleanness. Purity, honesty, righteousness, to be like God, who is righteous. They shall be filled. And so on, you notice, with all these beatitudes, let me just select one more. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. You'll never see God with your intellect. You'll never see God with your understanding and your mind. There's only one way to see God. And it is to be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. You notice all along he's saying that the approach is moral. It's not intellectual. And indeed this teaching is not confined simply to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the surprise that the Apostle Peter got when he was called to the house of a Gentile called Cornelius. This man, he says, isn't a Jew, and he felt he shouldn't go and speak to him. 
because he was hidebound and tied in by his Jewish notions and conceptions. But when he got there and heard what Cornelius had got to say, this is what he said, of a truth. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. He doesn't say, ah, I see that uh, these great thinkers, these people are always expressing their ideas concerning God and their opinions of God and who don't hesitate to criticize God and to say that God is wrong in doing certain things and in allowing others and who criticize the Lord Jesus Christ and put him right and bring him up to date and take things from his teaching and put in others. I see that they are accepted not at all. I perceive that God is no respecter of persons but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. Oh, if any man willeth to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. You see, the approach is not intellectual. The emphasis is not on the intellect ever, but it is always on the total condition of the man and especially his longing, his desire for righteousness. That's it. But you know, this must be genuine. And here our Lord, I say, is showing that he has seen through these Jewish authorities who talked so much about the law and who could argue so cleverly as to which was the greatest commandment of the law and whether you should tithe mint and rue and anise and come in and this and that and the other. He says you claim to be interested in the law. You're not interested at all in the law. You're not honest. You're not genuine. If any man really wills to do the will of God, he'll know that my doctrine isn't mine but God's. You don't know that it's God's. Why? Well, because you're not really interested in God's will at all. You are teaching for commandment. You are teaching for commandments the teachings of men. You are substituting your own ideas for the law of God. That is what he said about these Pharisees everywhere. The Apostle Paul says exactly the same thing about them in the epistle to the Romans. He says uh, that he has a great weight and heaviness in his heart uh, concerning his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He said, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, going about, he says, to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Yes, it was their own righteousness they were concerned about. It wasn't God's righteousness. If they'd had a concern about God's righteousness, they would never have crucified their own Messiah. But it wasn't God's righteousness. It was their own righteousness that they were concerned about. They were not really interested in God's will. They were interested in their own knowledge and in their own reputations and in the good opinion of men and women round about them. They walked to their synagogues and they could see the people looking on and saying there's the great so-and-so there's this great teacher there's that marvelous expert and they were proud of it and they made broad their phylacteries and the whole time they were only interested in themselves and not interested in God interested in the praise of men and not interested in the praise of God well, I say the same is still the trouble. You know, in a sense, it was the whole trouble, wasn't it, with that man who is called the rich young ruler? He came to Christ and said, Good master, what must I do? And he said, Well, there now is to commend. But he said, All these have I kept from my youth upwards. All right, says our Lord to himself, I'll test him. 
Very well, he says, being that you've done all this, sell all that thou hast and give to the poor and come, take up the cross and follow me. And he went away sorrowful. For he was very rich. He had great possessions. Ah, yes, he was interested as far as it went and as long as it was consistent with his own ideas. But when our Lord, interpreting the law of God, says, do that, he wouldn't do it. The law was all right as long as it fitted in with his scheme, his plan, his idea of it. But when it asked him to go further, when it asked him to love the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength, he wouldn't do it. And he went away sorrowful. My dear friend, this is our Lord, is the only way in which you'll ever come to know this truth. Don't make any mistake about this. If you're not a Christian, it isn't because of your intellect. That really has got nothing to do with it. I think we exploded that last Sunday night. I gave you the reasons. It isn't your mind. I'll tell you your trouble. It's moral. You're not genuinely seeking God. You're not really seeking holiness and morality. You're really putting up this intellectual camouflage to hide the running sword of your soul. You're really not facing yourself at all. That's your trouble. And until you face yourself, you'll always reject this gospel. It's not an intellectual matter. It is essentially a moral matter. Our whole attitude towards God. If you seek him with all your being, says Christ, you'll know that my teaching is his and not my own. Very well, there is our first proposition. Let me hurry to the second. My second point is this. That that first proposition is true of necessity. I say that the approach to the gospel is primarily and essentially moral and not intellectual. Now I'm going to prove to you why that must inevitably be the case. Why must it be the case? Well, I'll tell you why. Truth, religious truth, is not something theoretical and abstract. It is personal. What is religion? What, if you like, is theology? The very word theology means this. Knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. But God isn't an abstraction. God is not the absolute. God is not the uncaused cause. God is a person. God is personal. God says, I, and he speaks. He talks about himself. I am. You see, when we're talking about religion and discussing these matters, we're not in the realm of abstract theoretical truth at all. We're not like the Greek philosophers discussing goodness, beauty, and truth, which are pure thoughts and ideas in the mind. No, no, the moment you become interested in religion and in Christianity in particular, you are becoming interested now in a person. God is. God exists. God as a will, God expresses himself. Religion is communication and fellowship with God. It's a personal relationship. Now then, that is the first thing that we've got to grasp and to understand. Christianity, you know, is not just a question of moral and ethical teaching. 
I know there are many people who give that impression. These people who always give the impression that uh, Christianity is nothing but a series of protests. I'm going on to repeat this because the newspapers go on printing this sort of thing. Protesting about war, protesting about making bombs, protesting about the sentences passed by magistrates. Ah, oh, they say, that's Christianity. That is not Christianity. I'll tell you what Christianity is. It is knowing God. Being reconciled to him, being in fellowship with him. Oh, I know that there is Christian teaching with regard to many subjects. But you know, you can have all that and still not be a Christian. This is the essence of Christianity. This is life eternal, says our Lord. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. God is a person, and he's told us that he calls himself the Father. He sent his Son, and the Son said, Whosoever hath seen me hath seen the Father. Don't think of God in abstract terms. He's a person. And that is why I say the approach along the line of this truth is never to be merely theoretical and academic and abstract and intellectual, but must always be moral. Why? Well, because God is not only personal, but because of the nature of God. And this is what is so appalling about the way in which men speak about religion and about God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. If only they knew what they were doing and what they were saying. And you heard people criticizing God and saying this and that and cursing. Oh, if they but had a glimpse of him and knew what they were talking about. God, my dear friend, oh, if men only knew something about his greatness. He is from eternity to eternity, without beginning or end of days. He is the creator of the whole universe. He is endless in his power. He is present everywhere. He knows everything. God is. And there is no limit in any sense upon him and his being and his glory. And he is holy. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He dwelleth in a light which is unapproachable, whom no man hath ever seen or can see. He's in the burning light. Our God is a consuming fire. Can you approach such a being with your mind and intellect? Can you take up the attitude and say, well now, I'm going to investigate God. Now, I'm just going to see whether all this that God has said about himself is really right or true or not. And I'm going to examine it. So you put your specimen on the table. Oh, benighted fool! The God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways. That's the one you're speaking about. There's only one way to approach such a being. It was the very way that he indicated to his own servant Moses long ago. Moses was a shepherd, you remember, in a desert. And he took the sheep one day to the backside of a mountain. And there, quite casually, he looked and he saw a burning bush, a bush aflame with fire. And Moses thought, what an interesting phenomenon. This is interesting, I'll draw aside and have a look at this. And he was walking towards it when suddenly a voice came out and said, Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the ground whereon thou standest is holy ground. 
God's not to be examined. God's not to be investigated. God is not to be scrutinized and weighed and measured and assessed by our minds and our intellects. Oh, the blasphemy of it. Oh, the folly of it. Oh, the monstrosity, the imbecility of it all. God, because he is who and what he is, is to be worshipped. Take off thy shoes from off thy feet. God is to be obeyed. God has revealed himself in his law. He knows all. He sees all. He knows our very inward parts. And he desires truth in our inward parts. He can have no fellowship with evil. He can't have any dealings with sin. He's everlastingly holy. He is eternal light. How can he have fellowship with that which is evil? There is no communion between light and darkness, between God and Belial. There cannot be. The character of God makes it eternally impossible. And then, and then this becomes still more obvious when I point out this. I say that the fact that God is personal and that God is holy and righteous and so great in his glory makes it essential that the approach should be moral. And then I add that it becomes much more obvious and essential when we consider the nature of man in sin. When we consider what you and I are. You see, man is not a pure intellect in a kind of vacuum. Man, every one of us, is a very strange amalgam. We are mind and heart and will. Oh, yes, but we are many other things also. There's this body. And there are lusts and passions and desires. And we are sinners. We are a fallen race. Even if our minds were absolutely pure and clean, we couldn't encompass God, and it would be folly to try to understand him with the mind, even if we were perfect. But we are not perfect. We are a mass of prejudices. We never start with an open mind. Every time we express an opinion, we are defending ourselves. We start with a bias. We are against the truth. A man says, oh, but I'm an open-minded man. I've got the scientific, the modern scientific attitude. My dear friends, have you ever met scientists and talked to them? They're as prejudiced as the rest of us. They've got schools amongst themselves. They're jealous of one another. I had a little scientific training, you know, and I knew some of them. They hated one another. They rarely hated one another. And they hated them because of reputation. A scientist is only a man. He can't isolate himself, nor isolate his intellect. No, no, we're all governed by these things. Man has a free mind, we are told. Free mind and free thought. It's a complete impossibility. Listen to the words of the Son of God. This is the condemnation. That light is come into the world. Oh, why doesn't everybody believe it? And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Is man ready with an open mind to consider the light? Not at all. The moment that light flashes on him, he knows what it's doing. It's revealing his sinfulness. It's revealing his evil, and he doesn't like that. He wants to protect himself. He says, this isn't true. Who is this fellow? Are you asking me to believe something that was taught 2,000 years ago? They have not the knowledge we've got. Who is this fellow that you're asking us to believe in? Impossible. But that is, you see, because he disturbs us, isn't it? Well, he said it all in the seventh verse of the very chapter that we are considering together. He said, the world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. 
Because I testify of it that the works are evil. The trouble about Christianity is not that he talks about miracles, but that he talks about you. And because it exposes you as you are and looks at you in your sin and shame and your meanness and your pettiness and your spite and your jealousy and your envy and puts it all on the surface and you hate it for that reason. Men love darkness and hate the light. That is why it is supreme nonsense to think that you can ever arrive at a knowledge of Christian truth by means of your intellect alone. No, no, we call in the intellect to defend us against the searching light of God. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be that placed within thy searching sight. It shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. It can't be done. And we hate that. And so we put up our defenses. We erect the intellectual camouflage. It's nothing but self-defense. Guarding the prejudice. Trying to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling. The gospel of Jesus Christ isn't interested in your opinions. It's interested in your life. And what you're making of it. How would you feel if all the sins you've committed only today could be put up on a screen at the back of the pulpit here? How would you like the whole of your life to be read in an open book? That's what it's interested in. Your failure, your moral being, your moral iniquity. So I say our Lord's proposition is inevitable. Because we are what we are. And because God is who and what he is, the only approach that is possible is a moral one. Very well, that brings me to my third and my last point. It is this. I'm now going to show you why this moral approach, if it's genuine, inevitably leads to an acceptance of the truth, a recognition of him, and an embracing of his wonderful offer of salvation. I say it is inevitable if you and I really approach it on the moral level. Listen to him. If any man wisheth, really wills to do his will. He shall know of the doctrine. Whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I want to prove this to you. Why, I say, does it follow of necessity that if a man really wants to know God and really wants to be holy and clean and pure and upright and just and righteous, he will soon know that this is the truth of God. How does it work? It works like this. If you genuinely and truly set out to seek God, really to find him and to know him, really to love him and to worship him, if you really set out to do that, you will very soon discover that you can't do it. You read the lives of men who've tried before you. Greater men than any one of us in this meeting tonight. Some of the greatest men that the world has ever known. They set out in the quest to find God. To know him. And really to love him. But they discovered that they couldn't do it. They completely failed. 
Another thing that such a man discovers is this. He discovers, as I've been saying, that he is sinful. That he is vile. Now, my terms are not too strong. Charles Wesley says, Just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. Vile and full of sin I am. How did he discover that? Oh, he discovered that by drawing near unto God. You try it as an experiment. Spend a week reading nothing but this book. Spend your time in seeking God and in trying to live a pure and a clean and a holy life and you'll be amazed at what you'll discover in yourself. You'll discover evil, foul thoughts and imaginations. You'll find unworthy desires. You'll find bitter, cruel, harsh, envious feelings. You'll find that you're a mass of iniquity. Every man who's ever tried it has always come to that conclusion. Vile and full of sin I am. That's what you'll discover. And then a man who makes this genuine and real quest for God and the knowledge of him and fellowship with him and the holy life, he soon discovers this. That not only is he a sinner, but that he has sinned grievously against God. And that he is under the wrath of God, that he is guilty before God. He will discover that the Apostle Paul was saying nothing but the simple truth about him when he said, There is none righteous, no, not one. The whole world lieth guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You will find that you are a guilty sinner, not only a vile one, but a guilty one. And that God cannot possibly have dealings with you. You are amazed that you are still alive, that he hasn't blotted you out of existence. Guilty under the wrath of a holy God. Lost. And now you begin to feel desperate. You say, what can I do? Where can I turn? I can't find my way, but the world can't. I turn to the philosophers. I've already tried them. They don't know. Nobody can help me. Everybody's sinner. Everybody's lost. And here you are in the world and you're lost. You try to improve yourself and you find you can't improve yourself. Because the more you try, the worse you discover yourself to be. And you become depressed and anxious and that makes you worse. And on it goes in the vicious circle. You can't make yourself better. Men have tried it. Luther tried it before his conversion. Wesley tried it. All the saints have tried it. You can't do it. You'll discover that. And then you'll begin to discover that time is passing. The days and the weeks and the months and the years are fleeting by. And you're getting older and somebody dear to you dies. And you say, well, I've got to die. How does a man die? How can I lie on my deathbed without fear? How can I face death? What lies beyond? And you discover that you don't know how to die. A man who really seeks to do the will of God discovers that. He doesn't know how to die. In other words, this is what he discovers. That his greatest need is not further intellectual and philosophical understanding. He has long since forgotten all that. He isn't waiting for the latest wonderful book to come or that brilliant lecture that the great philosopher is going to give on the wireless. No, no. He says, no, no, my need is this. I need forgiveness. I need something to be done about my past sins. They're rising against me. I want to erase the blots out of my copybook of life. I can't get rid of it. My past. What can I do with this? I need to be forgiven. He's forgotten his mind. He's just a guilty sinner. He's been seeking to do the will of God. 
He needs forgiveness. He feels he needs a new nature. That he must be made anew from beginning to end. That he's so bad he can't be improved. He says, I need a complete renovation. I want a nature that loves the light and hates the darkness. Instead of hating the light and loving the darkness. And then he realizes his need of a power that will enable him to overcome sin and temptation. The world and the flesh and the devil will still be there. And how can he overcome them? How can he stand? He's always falling. He needs power and strength and might. Where can he find them? A man who really wills and wishes to do the will of God arrives at those conclusions. And what our Lord is saying is this. A man who has arrived at those conclusions is a man who's going to jump at my teaching with both hands and is going to thank God for it. And he's going to say, this must be from God. It and it alone meets my every need. What does it mean? It means this. He starts, you see, by saying, I'd like to know God, oh, that I might know God. Oh, that I might know where I might find him. I can't find him. My mind is too small. It's warped. It's sinful. No man can find him. No man has seen him. Knowledge of God. Where can I find it? And then he meets this person who says, No man hath ascended unto heaven. It's impossible. The highest ladders known to men, rockets fired from the top of them, can't reach heaven. No man ascendeth unto heaven nor ever can, except the Son of God who is in heaven. This man who is speaking of old there in Galilee who says, I have come down from God. I have descended from heaven. Here is one who can give me knowledge of God. He knows him. He has come out of his bosom. He is his only begotten. He is his beloved. He is his eternal son. Here is not a man repeating what he's been told. He speaks as an eyewitness. He was face to face with God. And he's come down amongst us. He has declared God. He answers my first great need. Here is teaching come from God. And then I say that I have discovered that I'm lost and forlorn. I am weary and sick and sad. I'm tired and at the end of my teller I don't know where I am. I'm lost. And then I hear a voice coming to me and saying, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Thank God. This must be a teaching come from God. Oh, yes, I am sinful. I am vile. I hear the voice saying to me again, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick, and I am terribly sick. I am morally sick. I am vile. I am a sinner. I am unclean. He says, I've come for such. Thank God, this must be a voice from God. No man speaks like that. And then I need forgiveness and pardon. And I cannot see anywhere whereby I can find it. I feel that God cannot forgive me. 
I've ignored him, I've blasphemed him, I've disobeyed him, I've put my will before his. And the things I've done, they're there, I've done what I have done. I have written what I have written. How can I? How can God forgive me? I feel it's impossible. But I look at this same person, and I hear him saying one afternoon, the Son of Man is come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I look at him on the cross, and this is what I find. I find there that here is a way whereby the righteous, holy, and just God can forgive me. For he hath laid on him my iniquity. He is just, and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. He has punished my sin as he said he would and yet because he's punished it in another he can forgive me. Here is the only way here is the only teaching that reconciles the justice and the love of God the righteousness the holiness and the compassion and the mercy and it is here alone. This must be a teaching come from God. I see a way now of pardon and forgiveness, but I need a new nature. Where can I have it? I listen to him again, and he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, ye must be born again. I am come that they might have life. Not intellectual knowledge. That isn't what they need. Life. And that they might have it more abundantly. I need strength and power. And I hear him saying that he is going to send the Holy Spirit to be another comforter, to be at my side, my advocate, my help, my strength, my power, that he'll make me more than conqueror. He answers this need, and finally, death itself. He has conquered it, He's gone through it and emerged the other side. By his glorious resurrection, he has vanquished the last enemy. He has taken the terror out of death and the grave. And he has opened the gate of heaven and the door into the presence of his heavenly Father. You approach these questions along the line of your moral need. And you will inevitably come to the conclusions that I've enumerated. And you will see that the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ answers every one of them. I defy you to think of a single question, but that he hasn't answered it already. He satisfies completely. As somebody said when he was here on earth, he doeth all things well. He does them perfectly. Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in him as the Son of God and the Savior of your soul? Have you believed his teaching? If you haven't, it's because of your appalling ignorance of God. 
It is because of your appalling ignorance of yourself. It is because of your appalling ignorance of what death means. It is because of your appalling ignorance of what's going to happen to you after you've died and as you stand before God in the judgment. It has nothing to do with your intellect at all. Nothing. Your intellect is no greater nor bigger than that of many of us who are Christians. Nothing to do with intellect. It is that you've never faced your moral condition. Your exceeding sinfulness, your desperate wickedness. Your lost condition. In the sight of that holy God. It is the because you've never realized that if you die like that, you will spend eternity in misery, unhappiness, self-accusation, realizing the folly of having refused the Son of God and His glorious free salvation. It's because you don't know that. That's the explanation. Well, I leave you with the challenge. If any man really and honestly and genuinely wills and wishes to do the will of God, you'll very soon fly to Jesus Christ, just as you are without a single plea. With all your doubts and fears and everything else, you'll be so desperate, you'll fly to him. You'll turn to him and say, wash me, Savior, ere I die. Let me hide myself in thee. I believe thy teaching, it's beyond me. My mind is too small and puny and sinful. I believe thy word. You'll fall at his feet and say, receive me. And blessed be his name. Though in our arrogant blasphemy and our intellectual pride and folly, we've criticized him and rejected him so long, he won't refuse us. He will still receive. For he has said, Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Be genuine, be honest, face the moral need. And you will go to him, and he will shower upon you the blessings of salvation. Amen.